please this morning uh, to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. And also Psalm 122. So we'll go to Psalm 27 first. Sorry about it being uh, overheated this morning. We really should have had the heat off and not come on today at all. The weather is, uh, for the first day of summer, uh, it's very encouraging to see a summer's day, isn't it? And that may be as good as it gets all year, but we may take the blessing of it today. And, uh, but if you're too warm, you can take your coat off. <clears throat> There are some songs and indeed tunes uh, that are classics. They have an enduring quality about them. They never uh, seem to die. Whether they've been around for centuries like uh, some of the old hymns that we sing or perhaps even classical pieces, uh, orchestral pieces, or even maybe even over decades like certain secular songs that seem to have a longevity too and Uh, and seems to go from one generation to another. However, the Psalms uh, have been around for millennia. And the 23rd Psalm, if you think about it, has been sung for thousands of years. Thousands of years. Not decades, not hundreds, but thousands of years. People have been singing Psalm 23. And uh, many of David's Psalms endure And they are timeless because they have been written with the pen of experience dipped in the ink of adversity and of victory. And that's why he said in Psalm 45 verse 1, My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. And Psalm 27 is another one of his great songs. Now, although we are quite confident that David was the author of this psalm, although there's some who disputes that because it speaks about the temple at the beginning and the end, and the temple wasn't built when David wrote this, and some say maybe Hezekiah topped and tailed it, but it's got the imprint of David on it. And even though he believed we wrote this, we're not sure when he wrote it. Some say it was whenever he was being hounded by King Saul. Others say it was when he went into hiding because of his treacherous son Absalom. Others still say it was whenever Doeg the Edomite was slandering him before Saul. We're not sure about any of that, but what we can be absolutely sure about is that he wrote this whenever he was in adversity, whenever he had problems aplenty. And in fact, you can see that in verse 1 and 2. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this will I be confident. And so he's writing here in a time of adversity, when he's been hounded by his enemies, when he's cut off from the house of the Lord. He says in verse 4, One thing I have desired, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord 
all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Also, it seems to be a time perhaps when there was family problems. In verse 10, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. And so here is a, a time when he has been uh, in adversity, when he is having all kinds of trouble uh, and, and false witnesses, for instance, in, chapter, in verse 12, so do not deliver me to the will of my adversities, uh, my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and such as breathe out violence. And yet in the midst of all of these uncertainties, and all of his fears and his doubts and his setbacks and his disappointments and all the dangers that he still had to go through, he still had an unquenchable desire to be in the house of the Lord. Now that should speak volumes to us because far too many believers, when trouble comes, the house of the Lord is the first thing to go. They lose their desire for the house of the Lord. But David, in spite of all he was going through, his desire for the house of the Lord was absolutely unquenchable. He loved the house of the Lord. He longed for it. He delighted in the house of the Lord. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Psalm 23 and 6, I will dwell in the house of the Lord of the Lord forever. Psalm 26 and 8. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. Verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Psalm 69, 9, because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And so we see here that David had got a tremendous hunger and desire to be in the house of the Lord. Do we have that hunger today? Do we have that desire? Clifford was so right in what he said just before I came to the platform. When you come to the house of the Lord, you come believing and expecting something to happen to you, to hear from heaven, to receive a touch from the Lord, to be encouraged and to be strengthened some way. I know that we come many times in our Mind is overloaded and we have all kinds of needs and problems and sometimes it's difficult even to focus and concentrate. But if you come to the house of God, even just to be in the presence of God, God will do something to your spirit. So Psalm 27 verse 4, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek. One thing. Apostle Paul says this, One thing. I do. Do you have a focus? Do you have a goal? Do you have an aim? Jesus, in his great mission when he came to this earth, he said, How I am straitened 
until it is accomplished. How I am restricted and hemmed in until I fulfill everything the Father has sent me to do. Jesus' time was very limited. There was many, many demands upon him. He had all kinds of responsibilities. But above everything, there was one thing he had to do, and he knew what he had to do. And he would not be distracted, and he would not be sidetracked. He would not be circumvented in any way. That one thing had to be done. And so whether it was David or Jesus or Paul, all their streams ran into one river. What about you? What about me? How focused are we? Verse 4, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. See, this was his great desire. David was a king. He was a warrior. He was a prophet. He was a poet. He was a musician. He was a songwriter. He was a composer. He was a man who wore many, many hats. But he would have gladly traded all of the men to be a priest before God. And that's the one thing that he couldn't be. <laughs> it's the one thing he would not be allowed to be because he did not come from the tribe of Levi and he certainly did not come from the ancestry of Aaron, the high priest. And so the very one thing that he really would have loved to have been a priest, he couldn't be. Why would he want to have been a priest? So that he could have served in the house of the Lord forever. So that his heart would have been where he really wanted to be. You know, it must have, his thoughts must have went many, many times to the duties of the high priest especially. And how that it was only the high priest and only once a year could go in behind the veil and see the Shekinah glory of God that would be between the cherubim upon the mercy seat. How his heart must have longed for just a peak, just one time in his life, just to go in there to see that. And so this shows us the tremendous heart he had, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. What a wonderful aspiration to have. Vance Havner said, there's something wrong with our Christianity if we have to beg people and plead with them to be at the house of the Lord. Something's wrong with that. We need to examine ourselves if that is the case. David, under the Old Testament, had not anything like what we've got in the New Testament. In fact, you and I are now priests unto God by virtue of the fact that we are in Christ. That makes us priests unto God to offer up spiritual sacrifices unto God. We are in a highly privileged position. Yes, right. But do we know it? Do we believe that? How we treat the house of God, I think we're revealed much about where our heart is. It's not hard to know where David's heart was. It was in the house of the Lord just to be in God's presence. I love the house of the Lord. I love it. I want to be in it. I joy in it. I prepare myself all week for it. And when it comes Sunday, I'm 
ready for it. Now, in my humanity, there's times when I don't feel like it. But the majority of times, I do feel like it. I make myself feel like it. I prepare for it. So I'm ready for it. Because I want to be in the house of the Lord. Then he says in verse 4, One thing I desire of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. What is this beauty of the Lord that he's talking about? We have never seen the Lord. Physically, we do not know what he looks like. No doubt we have all in our imaginations wondered and come up with something. But that's not what this is talking about. And the Bible talks about the beauty of the Lord. It's talking about the character of the Lord, the very nature, the very essence of the Lord. It's talking about His wonderful ways, His mercy, His love, His grace, His compassion, His faithfulness, His holiness. All this is the beauty of the Lord. And whenever we come to the house of God, that's what we should see, the beauty of the Lord. Do you look for that? Are you looking for His truth? Are you looking for His grace? Are you looking for His holiness? Are you looking for His faithfulness, His mercy, His love, and all of the wonderful attributes of the Son of God? Are you looking for that? Because if you are, you'll see it. You'll see it. You'll see it in the songs that we sing. You'll hear it in the words that was preached. And we ought to see it in the lives of those around us in the house of the Lord. John writes in his gospel in the first chapter in the 14th verse, speaking about Jesus. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. His glory, his beauty, grace and truth. What two wonderful attributes of God, his grace his unmerited favor and his truth towards us that lights our path. What a wonderful thing to behold the beauty of the Lord. Have you ever been in his house and you've been sitting or standing or worshiping or listening and all of a sudden something of his nature comes to your understanding like a revelation to your heart and you see another aspect of Christ's beauty. That's what it's supposed to be like. And verse 4, it says, and to inquire in his temple. To inquire in his temple. The house of God has got to be a place that you can make inquiry, that you can come and seek the Lord and ask questions. And say, Lord, I'm going to your house today and I've got questions and I need answers. Lord, would you help me today? Would you open up my heart and my spirit and my mind to receive the answers that I need? Psalm 63, verse 1 and 2. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. 
My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. I have looked for you in the sanctuary. Remember Asaph, David's choir director in Psalm 73? And how he was going through that stage in his life where he was feeling that things was going against him, but all the wicked out there, that things was on their side, and they were prospering, and he was in trouble. And the more he thought about that, the more negative and down he became. But then he said, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. When he entered the sanctuary of God, and you can be sure he went into inquire of the Lord to ask him these questions, because you read the psalm, that's what he's doing. Saying, God, why is this happening? How come they're being seemingly blessed and I'm not? It doesn't seem fair, Lord. It doesn't seem right. God's shoulders is big enough for questions like that, by the way. But he says, when I went into the sanctuary, when I went into inquiring the temple, then I saw your power and your glory. Then I understood their end. Something unique, special, profound, deeply spiritual about attending God's house. Most Christians, most Christians do not even understand that. They said something we do as Christians, it's much more than something we do. It is absolutely vital. It's crucial. Your whole Christian life is going to be dependent upon it. Your growth in God is going to be dependent upon this. Unless through illness or you're debilitated in some way or necessary work requirement from time to time or attendance in the house of the Lord is not just basic, but it is absolutely vital and important for a spiritual walk. We neglect it at our peril. Coming to the house of the Lord is an absolute requirement of the believer. It is. And those who neglect it, their lives show it. But those who are faithful to the house of the Lord, their lives also show it. In Psalm 122, Samus said, David said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Here is the call to worship. The fact is that we are worshiping creatures. We will worship our very nature demands that we worship. We cannot help but to worship. You say, what about the atheists? They worship. Their God is science. Their God is technology. Their God is humanism. They worship. That's their God. They believe, and I tell you how I know that, is because they openly say all the answers science will find for us. 
all the meaning behind life, science will find for us. That's their God. That's what they worship. So we will worship. Never ceases to amaze me how that highly educated men can say such daft things as what they say. We say that God created something out of nothing. They say that nothing created something out of nothing. And then they say that there's something wrong with our brains. They say that we have a religious belief that cannot be tested. But they also say that nothing created something out of nothing. How in the world can you test that? How can you prove that? The great high priest of atheism, Professor Dawkins, had to admit to the Archbishop of Canterbury, he openly admitted that he cannot prove there is no God. Because he's always saying, you prove there is a God. Now he said, well, I can't prove there is no God. Well, if he can't prove there is no God, then he's got a belief system. You've got a belief system. He's got a belief system. And that's what he worships. That's their God. And so we either worship the creator or we worship the creation of the creature. But we will worship. Now what does worship do? Worship turns our thoughts towards higher things. Worship gets our thoughts above ourselves for the first thing. Gets us thinking of higher things, eternal things. Worship is an acknowledgement that God is in control. It's an acknowledgement that God's in control. Now you may look across the world today and think there is no control, but God is in control. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows exactly what's happening. He knows exactly what He's doing. He knows exactly what's going to happen in a year's time, ten years' time, whatever. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And whenever we worship Him, we're acknowledging that He is in control. We're acknowledging that He is higher than all the cares and the affairs of this life. Remember the old song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Somehow when you start to worship, it takes your mind of our earthly problems, and it gets your mind lifted higher to Him. Worship is an expression of our gratitude. Whenever you worship, you begin to be thankful. And God loves us to be thankful. We like each other to be thankful, don't we? Did you ever give somebody somebody and they weren't thankful? How did you feel? And yet, God has given us so much are we thankful? Why is there only one leper come back? Where are the other nine? Did they not get healed too? Were they not cleansed? Where are they? Just one returned. One thankful heart returned. And it so pleased the heart of the master because he returned just to give thanks. 
So here is this wonderful call to worship. They said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Here's the community at worship. They said unto me, let us go. They, us. This is the social element of worship. This is the coming together of the Christian community. Corporately, in common together. In a weekly celebration, usually. There's something about the corporate worship of believers. It's an absolute must for the Christian. It is God-ordained. God expects nothing less than this. Whenever we unite ourselves in praise, whenever the blending of ourselves together in worship, this is what God requires. This is what we need. Believers need to worship together. Just as the fish needs the shoal, as the bee needs the hive, as the sheep needs the flock, as the footballer needs the team. Imagine if you were talking to somebody and in conversation, sports come up. And you said to the person, what sport are you interested in? And they says, oh, I'm a footballer. What would your first question be after that? Which team do you play for? That would be a natural question to ask. And if they said, I don't play for any team. I just play football. Really? Do you not mean you watch it and you like to see it on TV? No, no, I actually play it. But who do you play it with? I just play with myself. I have no team. I'm not interested in the team. I just play football. Well, you'd walk away and think, huh. Why is it that we think as believers that we can just isolate ourselves and we can just cut ourselves out of the flock, as it were, that we're not team players, and that somehow that's okay? It isn't. It's not biblical. Unless, through illness or debilitation, unless we just can't go to the house of the Lord. That's different. But most believers are not in that position. So we're without excuse. This is what God requires. This is what He looks for. This is what He sees. This is what we need. Hebrews says, Forsaking not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Now let me just say this again. You've heard me say it umpteen times, but it's worth repeating. Most of you come in here this morning and not one of these people on the platform is here. Not one of us. He's all walked in, sat down, looked around. Ten past eleven, platform's empty, and you're thinking, what in the world is going on? Where are those boys? You would be mighty disappointed, wouldn't you? You'd be shaking your head in disbelief. But somehow you think that we should do this, but you're different. That you've got a special dispensation that those in the platform or leadership doesn't have. You've got to get out a jail-free card. But you haven't. <laughs> the requirement's just the same, whether you're in the platform or in the pew. It's exactly the same. How long do you think the church would last if we did that? Hmm? How long do you think? 
week, two weeks, month. Might even last a month. But we don't do that. Sure we don't, Clifford. We don't do that. Because we love the house of the Lord. And we want the house of the Lord to be for you. To come and to be part of. And to enjoy. And to be involved in. And when everybody does that, church goes much better. Got very quiet in here this morning. <laughs> and then here's the center for worship. Let us go into the house of the Lord. Now I know that the Bible says that the heavens cannot contain God. I know that the Bible says that God doesn't dwell in buildings made with hands. I know that we we are mystically the body of Christ, that we are God's building, that we are God's temple. I know all of that. But the physical place where the mystical living stones of God's meet is still called the house of the Lord. Now we've got to get a balance in this. We do not worship bricks and mortar. Some do, but we don't. Because we know that we are the living temple of God. But we simply use bricks and mortar as a place where we meet to worship the living God. But we need to balance that also with respect and reverence for the place where we worship the living God. Because if we don't, somehow we lose the reverence and respect that's due to Him. Are you still with me? Now I know, and people have choices to make, but I know that many times, uh, new situations, maybe in a new build, there's lots of churches have grown and they built churches and they use them as a utility. Uh, you know, it's one building's used for everything. And sometimes that's maybe the only way they can do because of, of the cost and all the rest of it. But, I would be absolutely loath to do that if I had any other choice because I love to keep the sanctuary as the place where we worship the Lord. That when we come through those doors, we're here for a purpose. And that's why we should respect the house of the Lord. You can't believe how many things gets broken and wrecked and ruined in the house of the Lord. And do you know what? Very few people ever own up to it. Can you imagine? <laughs> Honestly, I have lost count of the stuff Ken could tell you that we had to replace because somebody was just absolutely careless in the house of the Lord. Never admitted it. We had to go out and replace it or buy it or fix it or something. That's not showing respect for the house of the Lord. By the way, let me just say this. It popped into my head. Ken asked me to say this. That little room downstairs as you come in on your left, which is used as a Sunday school room, the heater was on full blast. The electric heater on full blast probably since last Sunday until yesterday. Ken opened the door. It was like a sauna. Somebody forgot. 
please, if you put heaters on or lights on or whatever, you're in here during the week, whatever you're doing, please, please, please put them out. That could have started a fire. Now, I know that somebody didn't mean to do that. I know somebody didn't deliberately set out to do that, but it could have started a fire. So please be careful in the house of the Lord. Right. So, David, you're getting a lot of your chest today. I remember years and years and years ago, only did it the one time, never did it before or never did it since. Remember one time, Ken will remember this because he has to clean this place up. And there were so many papers, stuff lying, bottles lying all over the place. You'd have thought it was the omniplex you'd gone into. And so for a month, I kept it all in the box for a whole month. Then one Sunday morning, I got up here and I brought the box out, the cardboard box. You might remember this, Ken. brought the cardboard box out and stood there and emptied the whole lot out here, all there in the front. And everybody thought I was going to make a great spiritual biblical point out of it. I thought this was going to be a great illustration of my sermon. And so when I emptied the whole lot out, and there's a lot of it, I says, folks, that is the rubbish that you left in the house of the Lord for just one month. There it all is. Look, there's it all there. Do you know, Ken, there wasn't one piece of, of paper in that floor for about another month after that. And then everybody forgot and went back to the usual way. Why am I telling you that? You say, well, it's only bricks and mortar, but it's a mindset. It's a mindset. When we come through those doors, we come here to worship the Lord and give glory to Him. And how we handle that, it can be a mindset. You say God doesn't care about those things. Really? If doing those things makes us loose about our worship, He cares. He really cares. Because He doesn't want to be loose in our worship. And then we see here the contentment of worship. I was glad when they said unto me, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Now you wouldn't think it by looking at your faces this morning, but... We should enjoy the house of the Lord. We should be glad when we come into the house of the Lord. Glad in our worship. Glad in our praise. Glad in hearing the word of God. Glad in seeking the Lord. There should be a gladness in our heart to come to the house of the Lord. Some people get more excited about a TV program. Truthfully. More excited than coming to meet with the Lord of Lords. And so we need to reflect and think, what is the house of the Lord? When I come to the house of the Lord, what does God expect from me? What can I expect from Him? And it makes all the difference how we approach the house of the Lord. So that we come to the house of the Lord corporately together as one body, praising and worshiping and lifting up God 
It's name. Then, then, then God can begin to speak to our hearts and change us on the inside. God has ordained that we meet in his house. He has. Uh, thankfully, we now have buildings that we meet in. Of course, the early church didn't have those. They met in literal homes, the way we do midweek. By the way, did you ever think, what if we got a government that changed? And what if we got a government that decided to shut down every single church building in this country? What would we do as believers? You know what we'd have to do? We'd have to meet in our homes. That would be a shock to a lot of people, wouldn't it? But that's what we'd have to do. So we're not worshipping buildings. Why do we have them? Wonderful. We'll respect them, look after them, place to worship God. But what if they were taken away? We're still the church. We're still the body of Christ. We're still the temple of the Holy Ghost. So we can meet. There's a way we can meet. That's what happens in the church in China, isn't it? And it's absolutely exploded. You say then, should we just close our churches and just meet in houses? No, I don't think we should. I think as long as we have this liberty, I think there's a, a different dynamic whenever we all come together corporately. There's an entirely different dynamic in a larger group than there is in a smaller group. Those of you who come to the home groups know that exactly what I'm talking about. A different dynamic completely. Smaller groups much more personal, but then we lose out on the larger corporate worship. So it's good to have both, isn't it? It's good to do both. And it's great just to be in the house of the Lord today. And so we're here to worship. We're here to give God our best. We're here to do our best for the kingdom. We're here to learn to be instructed. We're here to help you find Christ and help you know the word of God and help to lead you into a place of worship and praise. This is what this team works hard for during the week so that we come in, that they set the platform for that so that it's so easy for us to come in and just join in. They've done the hard work but we just come in and join our voices together. Amen? Let's pray.